you know the basic story for, uh, for Australia. Over the course of the last generation, inequality has risen, whether you're looking at wealth inequality, income inequality, earnings inequality or consumption inequality. Uh, over the course of the last decade, the pattern depends on which data source and which uh, metric you use, uh, but certainly some metrics are still rising. Uh, for example, we've just seen the number of Australian billionaires jump in a single year from 60 to 76, a uh, 20% increase in the wealth uh, of the top 200. In terms of social mobility, again, there's a range of different, different estimates. I uh, had a study in 2007 using early waves of HILDA, uh, which has now been updated. We're starting to be able to look at individuals and track the same individuals as they move out of home. Again, those, those studies vary in the results they come up with, but generally say that uh, Australia is more mobile than the United States. Uh, but considerably less mobile than Scandinavia. Uh, I have research with uh, Greg Clark and Mike Pottinger looking at very long-run very long-run mobility in Australia uh, using a rare surnames approach, which will be in the explorations in economic history uh, in, uh, in due course. Um, we find there that Australia is uh, a surprisingly static society, uh, as sclerotic as Britain, we argue. And so, in the face of all that, I think we need to do more than simply argue for stemming the bleeding, for keeping inequality constant. Uh, I was uh, uh, turned on to the idea that we might actually reduce inequality uh, through uh, a terrific final book of my friend and mentor, Tony Atkinson, titled Inequality, What Can Be Done? Uh, and in that, Tony argued not only for, keeping, for, for smoothing the, uh, uh, the, the bedclothes of the dying patient, uh, but indeed for helping them to get better again. Uh, so uh, I've increased my level of ambition as term, in terms of what we can do. Uh, I accept that there is some irony in somebody standing in front of you who's uh, now part of the opposition rather than the government saying we should raise our level of ambition. And I will circle back at the end to the challenges of making the politics work around inequality. Uh, but here we are in the remaining time, 10 solutions for reducing inequality in Australia. First, I think we should be targeting 4% unemployment. That's the unemployment rate now in the United States, in Britain, in Germany. Uh, Steve is just about to go to New Zealand tomorrow, uh, where unemployment is 4.2%. And yet in Australia, it's been a long time since we had 4% unemployment. Uh, we've comforted ourselves with the idea that 5.2% unemployment is just fine. Uh, and yet there's reasons to believe our economy can do a lot better. Uh, we've had recent speeches by Philip Lowe and Lucy Ellis uh, pointing out that the Reserve Bank has lowered its estimate of the Nehru uh, from 6% uh, a decade ago now to below 4.5%. Uh, getting unemployment down wouldn't only, to 4%, wouldn't only mean that 160,000 more Australians were in work, uh, but would also mean that some of the most disadvantaged people in Australia got jobs. Uh, people with disabilities, people with lower levels of formal education, Indigenous Australians, would be among those most likely to be moved into work if we brought down inequality, if we brought down unemployment. Uh, we, can, uh, we can certainly achieve that uh, because, let's face it, we achieved it for a long time in the past. Uh, going right through the 1950s and 1960s, we had unemployment below 2%. Uh, if other 
Advanced countries can do it. If Australia could do it in the past, we can certainly achieve 4% unemployment again. Secondly, I think we need to tackle the uh, challenge of raising the academic aptitude of those going into the teaching profession. Uh, work that Chris Ryan and I did, uh, we were both at the Australian National University, uh, tracked the academic aptitude of new teachers going into Australian schools. We estimated in the early 1980s the typical teacher was in the top 30% of his or her class. But by the early 2000s, the typical teacher was only in the top 40% of his or her class. The Grattan Institute will shortly bring out a report showing that that problem has only gotten worse. Uh, when they track a range of metrics, looking at the literacy and numeracy of new teachers, uh, it seems to have declined further still. Now, a good player doesn't always make a good coach, but all else equal, you'd like somebody at the whiteboard who themselves did well when they were in school. All the more so when we know that there's significant sorting of teachers across schools. Uh, we've got better and better analysis now showing us that teachers uh, of high, the highest academic aptitude tend to be teaching the most advantaged students. The teachers begin their careers uh, teaching in disadvantaged schools and end their careers teaching in more advantaged schools. Exactly the opposite of what a policy of equality of opportunity would lead you to desire. You can get the sorting problem right uh, by, through uh, work measures uh, such as looking at the way in which teachers are remunerated across schools, but you can also get a gain to both equity and efficiency uh, by raising the standards for those who go into the teaching profession. Third, we want to narrow the gender pay gap. Uh, the gender pay gap in Australia has stubbornly failed to, uh, to, to close at any decent rate over the course of the last generation. Uh, we've seen a significant gap, particularly as you go towards the top of the distribution. Uh, as those who study the gender pay gap point out, uh, this isn't so much an issue of sticky floors as one of glass ceilings. Uh, within uh, professions such as cleaners, checkout workers, you see a gender pay gap that's a few percentage points. But in professions such as medicine and law, you see gender pay gaps of up to a quarter in hourly wage terms. How do we narrow gender, gender pay gaps? Well, one straightforward way is to introduce greater transparency within a firm level, to require large firms to report on the gender pay gap uh, with, among their employees. Uh, this has been done recently in Britain and prompted a significant conversation uh, over which firms have the uh, largest gender pay gaps uh, and what they can do to narrow those gaps. We also want to think about the challenges of implicit bias and how we're able to reduce the level of bias uh, caused by natural, natural stereotypes that, uh, that many people have, uh, driven often by uh, statistical norms within occupations. Implicit bias training, according to the studies I've seen, doesn't seem to work as well as we might have hoped. Uh, but given that we know this behavioural bias exists, it seems worth investing more resources uh, into reducing it. Increasingly too, we're recognising the role that sexual harassment can play in terms of increasing gender pay gaps. Uh, the study that the American Economic Association has put out 
uh, it, uh, look, surveying thousands of members of the US economics profession, uh, makes pretty sobering reading. Uh, the degree of harassment and discrimination that has been experienced uh, by women economists in the United States is pretty brutal. Uh, my guess is that economics isn't unusual in this regard uh, and that more scrutiny both in terms of firm policies and individual behaviours on reducing the degree of sexual harassment uh, could significantly narrow the gender pay gap. Uh, Deborah Cobb-Clark has done some really important work in this area uh, looking at the prevalence of, uh, of sexual harassment uh, and its interplay with the gender pay gap. Fourth, I think we need to look at the role of monopolies. Uh, in Australia, if you think of a concentrated industry as being one in which the big four firms have more than a third of the market, uh, more than half of the economy is concentrated. We naturally think of sectors such as uh, banking, telecommunications and supermarkets. But actually the problem of market power runs much deeper. Uh, concentrated markets include department stores and funeral homes. They include beer and baby food. And in many sectors, that problem is getting worse. Monopoly power has, in our traditional conception, been principally about its impact on consumers. But an increasing strand of research is suggesting that excess monopoly power may also have other pernicious effects on the economy. Firms that don't face significant pressure from competitors have less of an incentive to carry out research and development. And so concentrated markets may be one reason why we're seeing less business investment in research and development in Australia uh, than we ought to see. Firms that enjoy strong market power also don't have to pay employees uh, as much as firms which face competitive pressures in the hiring market. In this sense, monopoly power and monopsony power seem to be running together. Now, it's hard to measure. Uh, some of the studies out of the United States that have shown a correlation between uh, concentrated hiring markets uh, and lower wages suffer from the problem that it's not really clear that an absence of uh, opportunities for software engineers in Kansas compared to Silicon Valley represents only monopsony power. It might have to do with some other unobservable factor uh, to do with the productivity in those two areas. Nonetheless, there's enough going on in terms of rising monopoly power and there's enough evidence around the sorts of behaviours firms have engaged in. Uh, whether it's the collusion that we saw between uh, Pixar and uh, a range of other Silicon Valley firms uh, to uh, prevent uh, one another hiring software engineers, whether it's the prevalence of no poach agreements, uh, which, are, uh, which cover uh, an extraordinarily large, uh, large share of the US workforce. Uh, Non-compete agreements mean that when someone leaves their employer, they're unable for uh, significant periods of time uh, to join uh, another, another firm competing in the same, the same industry. Uh, and work by the late Alan Kruger uh, showed that many franchise agreements prevent franchisees from hiring firms from competing franchises, uh, to the extent that a McDonald's worker may be prevented from <coughs> being employed by another McDonald's. All of this means that strong monopoly power is an exacerbating factor in inequality. 
and that a set of uh, competition laws written for a 20th century economy might not be appropriate to a 21st century economy. What can we do? Well, more resources for the regulator, uh, tougher rules around uh, scrutinising whether mergers have been successful or not, uh, ensuring that we're able to uh, focus appropriately uh, on large technology companies uh, and their role in exerting market power. All of these things would have an impact on bringing about more competitive markets, uh, not only to the benefit of consumers, but also potentially to the benefit of consumers. Fifth, we want to see a, a tax code which is more progressive and less ridden with loopholes. Uh, analysis recently published by the ANU Tax and Transfer Policy Institute has shown that over the course of the last couple of decades, the Australian Personal Income Tax Code has become less progressive. Uh, and yet the main tax reform proposal on the table at the moment would see that tax code become less progressive still. Now this isn't a trade-off of flattening the scales in exchange for removing tax loopholes, as was done by uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill in 1985 with the US Tax Reform Act. Instead, it's keeping in place all of the existing tax loopholes and simply uh, reducing the, uh, the, the, the progressive nature of the tax scales. If you look at uh, work on, by, say, Peter Whiteford on the role of the tax and transfer system in redressing inequality, he points out that most of the heavy lifting is done by the transfer system. But to the extent that the tax system is the one that's, uh, that's being uh, flattened out, uh, that is likely to exacerbate inequality. We've also seen uh, growth in structures which exacerbate inequality uh, through the use of offshore instruments. Uh, we now have a situation in which $2.05 of multinational profits flow through tax havens and zero tax jurisdictions. Around $100 billion of Australia's wealth is estimated to be held in tax havens. Tax havens are a favoured hidey hole for those who are, uh, are seeking to uh, avoid government, uh, whether it's money launderers, illegal arms dealers, drug runners or extortionists. But we also know uh, that they're being used to evade taxes. And indeed, one study suggests that around $4 in five of the money sitting in offshore tax havens uh, is there in breach of other countries' tax laws. Uh, better data matching, uh, better uh, rules around uh, engagement with tax havens, guidelines for superannuation companies, use of tax havens, all of this could play an important role in ensuring that tax havens no longer erode the global, the global tax base to the extent that they've currently been doing. It's important on the personal income tax side uh, as on the corporate, uh, corporate income tax side. Uh, if we don't uh, curtail the use of tax havens, um, they threaten the very corporate tax base itself. Uh, so it's absolutely critical uh, to look carefully at it, uh, including to look at proposals to set up new tax havens, uh, such as the one Papua New Guinea is discussing for Manus at the moment. Sixth, I think we want to ensure that the general public has uh, accurate perceptions about the degree of inequality and the degree uh, of, uh, and the distribution of income. We want to use inequality metrics which are comprehensible to the general public. 
An ACTU survey uh, carried out a few years back uh, asked people uh, about the wealth distribution in Australia and then compared their answers uh, to the reality of wealth distribution. Turns out that Australians think our wealth is distributed more equally than Scandinavia. Uh, we believe we're living in Sweden. In fact, the wealth distribution looks a whole lot more like the United States. So misperceptions of the true extent of wealth inequality naturally flow into policy. Uh, we've also got uh, considerable misperception uh, as to what the average Australian earns. Uh, so, for example, a study in Fairfax Papers today uh, talks about the share of the latest income tax cut uh, which goes to those earning above and below $180,000. And hazard a guess that the journalists who wrote it know many people earning an individual income of over $180,000. Uh, but if you look across the general population, uh, that is an income which easily places you into the top 10%. The uh, median household income in Australia is about $85,000. The median wage in Australia is about $55,000. The median individual income reported by taxpayers to the tax office is about $45,000. So $180,000 places you four times higher than the median income reported by Australian taxpayers. Better information, I think, for, leads to a more informed debate and potentially to less inequality. And it's important too for us to think about how we engage uh, with the general public about inequality. Uh, I'm as much a fan as, as all of you in the room about the uh, principles that uh, uh, inequality metrics uh, should, uh, should be scale independent and decomposable. But sometimes uh, a focus on metrics which are precise for the benchmarks we set ourselves as a profession aren't as easily communicable to our grandmother. So if you want to explain what a Gini coefficient is, well, I can tell you that uh, the Gini coefficient is uh, half the size of the gap between two randomly selected individuals in a population as a share of average income. But chances are you fell asleep halfway through that sentence. When Tom Piketty says that the top 1% share in America has doubled, he's immediately got your attention. Top 1% share is an easily communicable measure. Now, it's not going to be affected at all by a transfer from the 10th percentile to the median, but it does convey something immediate and tractable. So we ought to always be aware when we're engaging in the public conversation around inequality uh, that the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good and that sometimes using metrics which are less than perfect but are easily communicable may be worthwhile. I think top shares do that for inequality. I'm not sure we've yet nailed it for mobility. Intergenerational elasticities are not an immediately comprehensible metric uh, for many people. Uh, but the work being done by Raj Chetty uh, in which he looks at the share of children who can expect to earn more than their parents, well, that's getting more to a, to a measure that uh, many can appreciate. And when he tells you that in the post-war decade, nine out of 10 American kids earn more than their parents, but for those born in the 80s, uh, only about half earn more than their parents, well, you've immediately got a tractable measure there. 
Again, it might not have some of the perfect character that we would like to have in an intergenerational elasticity or correlation, but it's more readily communicable to the general public. Seventh, it's important to have stronger unions. Trade unions tend to get a bad rap uh, in the Australian public, but there is no stronger social institution for egalitarianism than trade unions. Unions campaign for pay equity within workplaces and across them. In the Australian context, unions have been behind campaigns for uh, racial wage equality, uh, for equality, uh, for removing expli explicit discrimination uh, against women in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, they've campaigned on uh, equal pay across industries and they've campaigned for groups such as migrant workers uh, who've been systematically ripped off by a number of high-profile employers. We know that unionised workplaces tend to have a more equal distribution of income and that unions uh, raise wages uh, with the union wage premium uh, being considerably larger than typical union dues. Nonetheless, there is, as with all of these things, a free rider problem. Uh, if you can enjoy the wage gains from unions without paying the union dues, there's a temptation uh, to stay out of the union, particularly in, in, in a country where we haven't typically had union-only agreements being put in place. Uh, in combination with changes in laws that we've seen over the course of the last generation, uh, we've had the union membership rate, uh, which was about half the workforce uh, for much of the 20th century, fall now to 13% of the workforce. The, we think of ourselves as having a more unionised economy than the United States, but that's only barely true. Uh, they're at 11%, we're at 13%. Uh, if you go to a number of US states, among them California and New York, you're more likely to bump into a union member than if you walk down the streets in Australia. So the Australian unionisation rate within a decade uh, will be at the US level of unionisation. If that trend continues, it's likely we'll see widening pay gaps uh, within the workplace. And so laws that make it easier for unions to collectively bargain and organise uh, would place downward pressure on inequality in Australia. Eighth, I believe it's worth contemplating whether or not wage subsidies could be dialled up in Australia. Uh, negative income taxes, earned income tax credits, have played a significant role in ameliorating inequality in both Britain and the United States. Uh, targeted principally at single parent households, uh, they've had uh, a work incentive effect, uh, drawing people uh, into the workforce at a far, far greater rate through the phase in range than they have deterred people through the inevitable phase out range. Uh, earned income tax credits have been a particularly powerful tool for transferring resources to uh, children in low-income households where uh, a parent is employed. If you believe there's some intergenerational uh, pattern uh, in which children benefit from being in a household in which at least one parent works, uh, then wage subsidies can potentially provide that. In a country in which there's around 600,000 kids currently living in jobless households, wage subsidies could create more opportunities for those households. It's true also that in a nation with a minimum wage whose ratio to the median wage is higher than the OECD average, we could get significant benefits through putting in place wage subsidies. 
We had them for certain groups, uh, for the long-term unemployed, for mature age workers, uh, but considering whether or not wage subsidies could work in other contexts uh, is, I believe, uh, something that would place downward pressure on inequality. Uh, ninth, before accepting anything I have said up until this point, we should try it and see. Uh, extending more randomised policy trials uh, is a prescription which can improve policies right across the board. Uh, whether you're talking about efficiency or, or equity, uh, improving the feedback, quality of the feedback loop is absolutely critical. Randomised policy trials are increasingly common in large firms, whether you're talking about uh, Lyft or Humana, uh, United Airlines uh, or, uh, or Google itself. Uh, significant wealth of data uh, doesn't take away the fact that correlation doesn't imply causation. And if you want to find out the causal impact of your policies, then there's no better tool to use than random assignment. Random assignment isn't going to work in all contexts. It's not going to be a way of assessing whether or not we can reintegrate the Korean Peninsula or benefit from lower interest rates. Uh, but it does provide terrific potential for assessing policy tweaks, for looking at whether or not we can improve ways of communicating uh, with jobless workers, uh, to looking at whether or not training programs within jails are effective or ineffective. The more you care about egalitarianism, the more you should be disturbed by programs which are ostensibly egalitarian but actually don't work, that are promising to reduce the Gini coefficient uh, but not delivering their intended effects. There's a terrifyingly large share of such programs out there. Uh, the program Scared Straight was premised on the idea that bringing delinquent youth into jail for a day and showing them life on the inside would lead them to go on the straight and narrow. In fact, it turned out that when you moved from low quality evaluations to high quality randomised trials, scared straight wasn't just ineffective, it was increasing crime rates. Conversely, Australia's benefited considerably from the randomised trials conducted around the New South Wales Drug Court, which showed that although drug courts are more expensive than the traditional criminal justice process, they more than pay off for the taxpayer, reducing crime and reoffending more effectively than the traditional process. To a first approximation, Australia isn't doing any randomised policy trials. And so, for egalitarian reasons, I think it would be extraordinarily valuable were we to do more of them. And tenth, and this comes back to my opening statement about the irony of an ambition about reducing inequality uh, at a time in which uh, my side has just been walloped in the polls, uh, we need to fix politics. A party putting forward an egalitarian platform uh, last month succeeded only in winning one primary vote out of three in Australia. I'm speaking here in a state in which we got only one primary vote out of four. There's clearly lessons we can learn about how better to communicate, <coughs> making sure that we have a more focused uh, agenda, uh, ensuring that uh, we are uh, res as respectful as possible in the public debate of those who might not benefit from our policies. But there's also a number of pernicious trends that are taking place in Australian politics. Uh, the fact that 
a coal billionaire is able to spend uh, $60 million on his advertisements, uh, which had at best a loose relationship with the truth, uh, does have significant implications uh, for how politics is conducted in Australia. Subterranean scare campaigns running on Facebook in particular, but also through roadside signs and uh, chat groups such as WeChat, uh, suggested that Labor was going to put in place inheritance taxes, a policy that my party last supported in 1977. The prevalence of these campaigns is only going to become worse. Now, you look at the uh, use of uh, platforms such as Facebook uh, in the 2016 election campaign and the subsequent US midterms. You look at the misinformation that's characterised a range of European elections over recent times. Uh, you look at the atrocious role that uh, misinformation about Rohingya Muslims played uh, in the genocide that's took, taken place in Myanmar. All of this could well just be the very beginning of a seismic shift in how political communication takes place. And that ought to concern everybody who's worried about the quality of our public conversation, who thinks that facts ought to uh, trump lies, who believes that we ought to engage in a reasoned argument in which each side brings their best case for sober consideration. Australia's already a market in which traditional media is heavily concentrated. If you look at our newspapers, newspaper market, uh, there's no market in the world, according to the uh, Finkel inquiry, that is more concentrated uh, than Australia. Uh, if you look at uh, the Australian uh, television networks, they're also fairly concentrated. And now this year, we've got advertising online exceeding the sum total of print, radio and television advertising. That's again a heavily concentrated and lightly regulated market. The ACCC's digital platforms inquiry is going to be looking uh, in, uh, in its final report uh, in much more detail as to how we can tackle this. Mistruth in politics is fundamentally likely to lead us towards greater inequality and less equality of opportunity. Uh, we need to improve how we handle donations, providing more transparency around donations, and put in place a National Integrity Commission. Ensuring that we fix politics is, is ensuring that we're able to bring about a greater egalitarian agenda. So there's 10 ideas for you. I hope I've left plenty of time for questions and conversation, either to me or to John. Uh, but thank you again for the uh, opportunity to speak to you. Uh, it is deeply cathartic. And if every one of the next thousand days in opposition is as uh, thoughtful, inspiring uh, and uh, engaging as this one, uh, I might just make it to the next election. Thanks very much.